During the run of 1984, the Ash Center for Democratic Governance and Innovation at Harvard's Kennedy School and the American Repertory Theater co-hosted a series of special panel discussions around questions of surveillance, totalitarianism, and the role of technology in popular uprisings. On March 2nd, Tony Seish, Ash Center Director and Daewoo Professor of International Affairs at Harvard Kennedy School, joined ART's Artistics Programs Associate Robert Duffley for a talkback. Seish discussed the linkage between themes explored in 1984 and the development of new social media in China. For more information about the American Repertory Theater, visit AmericanRepertoryTheater.org. For more information about the Ash Center, visit ash.harvard.edu. To get things started, I'll ask a couple questions just to get things started, and then we'll open it up to all of you, and we'll keep it at around 25 minutes. Um, so, sound good? Yeah. Great. Um, so, just to get started, this can be a very visceral and maybe even challenging piece of theater to watch. So, I'm wondering, given your expertise and your experience, what some of your initial reactions to the show are? Yeah, I think uh, leaving aside the brutality of the end of the uh, show, if you think about authoritarian systems, and what I think is interesting is first, you know, 1984 was one of a series of uh, novels about dystopian futures. You had uh, Eugene Zamiatin's We, you had Aldous Huxley's uh, Brave New World, and all of them were at a time when people were concerned about new technologies and to what extent they would control our lives. And I think why it resonates now is that we're in another phase, whether you're looking at the US that colleagues of mine were talking about last week or places like China, there's also the concerns about role of government, the overbearing role of government, and what new technologies may do either to liberate people or to enslave people further. As I watched it, there were four themes that struck me uh, that we see resonating in authoritarian uh, regimes, uh, maybe other regimes as well. The first is the notion of nationalism, to uh, build um, some kind of uh, unity amongst the people, and we see that with always the reference to the wars outside. The second is the need for public confessions, that there are enemies within, and that uh, it has to be a public confession, it has to be on a public stage, and of course, the person just does not make mistakes, but they've been evil uh, continually. Mm -hmm. And uh, you know, throughout their whole existence, they've harbored these evil thoughts, they've sought to undermine the system and so forth. Then I think thirdly, another theme that uh, struck me with it uh, was the unpersoning. Uh, that once you become uh, an outcast, you're not only outcast at that moment in time, but you're erased from historical memory. And the last thing, of course, which is uh, a lot of the underlying theme, is that there's the idea that um, thought can be controlled, and it can be controlled through language, and that by limiting what people can say, what people can write, this will limit what people can think, ultimately. And, you know, we, we had the examples in the play where, you know, uh, by 2050, uh, you know, we'll have less and less words, there'll be less and less capacity to thought. That sort of hooks into one of the things that I wanted to talk about, which is why there's jello nailed to the wall in this picture. I was going to ask. <laughs> and it's the idea that somehow the internet and social media was going to liberate us from those kinds of forces. And uh, 
The reason I put this up to start with was that back in 2000, President Clinton uh, said that trying to control the internet would be like nailing jello to the wall. And he said, if you think just how much the internet uh, is going to impact on America, just think what it will do to China. Well, what this picture shows is you actually can nail jello to the wall. <laughs> And I think what we've seen is that a much more nuanced picture as a result is emerging uh, from the internet, from the role of social media, where yes, it creates new platforms, it creates new spaces, but it also provides new opportunities for government uh, to intervene in the lives of citizens, to be able to monitor in different ways. Mm -hmm. So if we're looking at the landscape of new social media in China, how are some of those themes that you saw in 1984 working on platforms there? Well, I think what you begin to see is that any, um, any system that tries to control language and works in a very formulaic way of what you say is going to open itself up to ridicule. And this was, uh, or plays on words. And so this is in the linguistic uh, sense uh, that you had this series of slogans. So Chinese Communist Party came to power in 1949, and it said only socialism can change, uh, save China. You get to 1979, when the reforms start, and you get the saying, well, only capitalism can save China. After the student demonstrations of 1989, the, they say, well, only China can save socialism. And then, of course, after the financial crisis in the West, you get the latest slogan that uh, people started saying, only China can save capitalism. So if you try and control language in that way, you're opening yourselves up for word plays, games, and kind of jokes that undermine and ridicule uh, the language of the system. So thinking about the moment in the play where the chocolate ration announcement is made, um, are these more real world announcements, were they made overnight or were they more gradual shifts? Um, I think you see things like that where there is an attempt to erase uh, memory. And wh what you do see is a continual rewriting of history as people drop out of history, uh, and, you know, new narratives come to the fore. And it's, it's more of a gradual process that, that seeps in. Your textbooks get rewritten, uh, slogans get rewritten. Uh, but, you know, as you see in many systems, and you saw it uh, in the play, this distinction between what is the public persona and can you really keep the feeling that is you and your identity inside? And I think you see that very much in a number of countries where there's a public expression which fits with the narrative of the government, but then there's what people call private transcripts or uh, what people say to you one-on-one -on -one or in a more closed environment, which might be very subversive of what the system is saying. But people play games uh, with this online, which was one of the things I was going to show and talk about a little bit. And so you have, for example, uh, what I was going to show next. When Christian Bale uh, went to film Batman in China, I guess his handlers said to him, um, you're going to have to make some statements to hold the rights community off you, you know, off of you, you know, filming this in China. So he went to try and see uh, a blind lawyer uh, who was held uh, basically under house arrest because he'd exposed issues related to forced abortions and family planning in China. And he was stopped uh, by this local guard that was hided, uh, hidden 
or hired rather by the local government. And then what you see is people become playful online with the new media and this person becomes a meme uh, across everywhere. Here he is crushing Batman. And when he we're has, talking about social media, sorry, what yeah. platforms are these memes being circulated on primarily? A lot of these are uh, basically online platforms. They're chat groups, uh, things which are shared the same way here. It'll pop up on your iPhone uh, with this. And people share these, they invent these. So, you know, here he's seen advising the previous, uh, previous premier of China. He also uh, has an interest in international affairs, for example. So he's helping there. He has uh, an interest uh, in China, of course, coming out to be a part of the uh, international uh, community, uh, being there in Times Square. And then you see more serious things beginning to take place, though, where the Chinese government tried to cover up the spread of SARS, uh, 2002-2003. And it was new media that actually was able to make that uh, public. Uh, people were sending texts, millions of them, when saying, you know, there's something here in the South and it's killing people. And so it can be used not just for jokes like that, but it can also be used for public service, uh, as it was with SARS. And it becomes uh, used for some of the more uh, serious issues with government cover-ups. Uh, this was just an example. Um, it's why Chinese officials now will always wear their sleeves down like this because this person was seen uh, wearing a watch which was much more expensive than he could have ever have afforded uh, on his actual salary. And again, it got uh, sentences sent around uh, on the uh, internet, it went viral. He was also wearing this watch seen laughing just after a terrible accident had taken place. Eventually the man as a result was investigated and uh, was imprisoned uh, for 14 years for corruption uh, when they found uh, large holdings. So it's changing. Mm -hmm. uh, you know, it's not just that government can control, but at the same time, people can make jokes of the system, but they can also use it to push perhaps more important messages out to the broader public that wouldn't happen through the kind of new speak control system uh, that we just saw in 1984. So are the people making those points or circulating these memes, are they in danger at any point? What's the risk associated with sharing these jokes or, or more serious ideas? It varies over time. I mean, one of the things is, you know, I have kids who are early 20s. And what I've learned with kids who are early 20s, it doesn't matter what controls I tried to put on when they were teenagers around the house. They always had a way of getting around it. They always had a way of getting information that I didn't necessarily want them to get. So the government, in a sense, is always paying catch up. Uh, it's taking things down, but by the time it's taking things down on the web, millions of people have seen it. So, you know, the messages still get out there. They still circulate. Is it dangerous? Yes, it can be dangerous. And certainly uh, over the last couple of years, we've seen much more of a tightening uh, around uh, controls of what people can say. Um, VPNs were banned as of a year ago. You have to use real name to register when you take an account online. If something is retweeted uh, that you put up that the government claims is fake more than 500 times, you can be liable for a prison sentence uh, and so forth. And the government does other things as well. 
It uh, tries to control things. And it has something which is people make fun of. They call them the 50 cents party. And this is a 50 cent note. Uh, there's another joke in it as well, but I don't have time to go into that. And it's called the 50 cent party because all these people are paid 50 cents for every positive comment they make about the party or party policy online. On so, any platform or? Uh, yes, any platform, yes. And in fact, the party's been very good at getting its messages out onto uh, these social media chat groups and chat platforms. Now, uh, as this shows, the people become ridiculed. And I think this last one I just wanted to show really shows, and I think it relates to the, what we saw at the end with teeth being pulled, how people, uh, the online community, uh, responded to all these like, latest controls. Uh, this went up and went viral, and you see uh, the mouth is stitched together because there isn't the capacity to have free speech, which I guess parallels uh, the way we finished with 1984 uh, when Winston has his teeth uh, torn out from his mouth to uh, disenable him from being able to speak truth. Well, last question from me would be, in the play that we've just seen and in the world of the novel, the telescreen is so clearly a device of government control. Um, how would you compare that device to the ways in which smartphones or computers or these social platforms are working in contemporary China today? Well, again, I think it's not just contemporary China. I mean, I think, you know, the discussions of colleagues of mine last week about the US, it's uh, the proverbial double-edged sword. I mm -hmm. mean, of course, it opens up uh, more venues for people to interact, to uh, socialize. But as we also know, it opens up uh, more avenues for government to engage in surveillance. I think the one thing it does in China uh, beyond enhancing government capacities uh, for surveillance is if you think about, in a lot of authoritarian systems, the mechanism of transmitting information is vertical. Mm -hmm. And there are attempts to control information through vertical columns. What things like social media do and iPhones and so on and so forth is they allow people to communicate horizontally. And that breaks out of a lot of these traditional systems um, of information and control. So, you know, it's a battle and it's an ongoing battle. And my suspicion is over time, as younger generations grow up, as they become more sophisticated in the use of these technologies, it's something that's very hard for a government to hold back. Because at the same time, you know, the government wants economic development. And you can't really have economic development uh, successfully if you close off these communication systems. Because you also need real-time uh, information delivered at high speed. And it's hard to let one happen but close down the other, I think. Mm -hmm. Well, at this point, I want to open it up to questions from the audience. If you have a question, just let me bring in the microphone so we can include you in the podcast. Um, we'll start back here. I think this will come back if we just hit the mouse. Thank you. Um, I did live in a country where, which did have vertical systems, like you mentioned, as you yeah. can hear by my accent. But... Um, I'm more interested in horizontal system. What we're seeing here is that you don't need to have vertical system to suppress information or lie. Um, how that can be overcome? Because we see what's happening uh, here, and uh, it is sometimes very frightening as well. 
Yeah, I think, as I said, I think what has emerged is a much more nuanced picture than many people perhaps predicted at the end of the last century, that somehow these open information systems uh, would be beneficial, they would allow people to communicate more easily, um, you know, uh, governments that attempted to control information uh, would be given the runaround. But I think, uh, you know, in all countries what we're seeing is governments are uh, responding, uh, both in terms of getting their own messages out using these different communication devices, but also being able to f surveil uh, citizens more effectively. And perhaps we see that most strongly if we look at you know, uh, more authoritarian political regimes, but I don't think democracies are uh, devoid of those kinds of practices either. And I think it is something, as I said, my colleagues talked about this more last week, but I think it is a continual cat and mouse game. And I don't think we know uh, what the outcomes of that are. I mean, we do know, uh, you know, I can be tracked pretty much anywhere I go, should anybody want to do that. It could probably be tracked pretty much anything I say. I mean, things are now continual public records which are being created and recreated. Other questions? Yeah. So I guess bringing this back to the, you know, the current controversy about the, you know, the, the encryption and kind of the asymmetric uh, situation that we're kind of locked into. Uh, I heard an interview yesterday with the former, uh, Michael Hayden, the former head of national security, who um, came out and said that total encryption, when you weigh all the balance, you know, weigh in the balance, actually makes the country safer. Mm -hmm. Because if we control, we, whoever we is, controls total, you know, total, it's going to be developed somewhere, and it's better to have it here. And if the information is truly secure, well, we're, you know, we're all safer. It was kind of a counterintuitive view for someone like that to, uh, just to, interested in your response. Um, I don't really know, honestly, a, a clear answer to that. Um, you know, I think um, my sense is that ultimately there will be never anything that uh, amounts to total encryption. And uh, so I'm not convinced that that is really viable. Um, and, you know, once, say, for example, with the current debate around the Apple iPhone, you know, can you unlock one phone and then it's not the case that uh, that information is out there and anybody can take that information and anybody can unlock the phones? I just think that the technologies, uh, no matter what, are so vulnerable uh, to people being able to either attack them or use them uh, that I... I think it's a fallacy to think that uh, something can be totally protected or totally encrypted. But I'm, you know, I'm not a specialist in that field, so I wouldn't really have a, you know, a technical answer for you. Another question, right here. Uh, given that the internet is relatively new, the the new internet culture, um, do you expect that as uh, the new generation in China kind of grows up and fills in the roles of the previous generation. Do you expect that the authoritarian um, attitude or demeanor that the government has, 
do you expect that to kind of be transient and, and kind of uh, diminish? Or do you expect that, or do you expect the, the newer generation to kind of become more savvy towards policing itself and being authoritarian towards itself? Yeah, that's a really interesting question. I mean, I think if you think, you know, I mean, I'm not a young Chinese person, but, uh, you know, I think a lot of young Chinese people use uh, internet in the same way as people do here. Much of it is gaming, it's uh, looking online, it's shopping, it's, you know, it's not looking for political information. So I think a lot of it is, you know, it's just another tool in the way of living your life. I think it does become interesting in the sense of, um, you know, the question if you are looking, say, for more political information. Um, I, you know, my sense is that most of the internet savvy people in China can find a way to get the information they want. Is that a huge number? I don't know. I mean, how many people in China, if uh, there really was completely free access, would want to read The Guardian or would want to read The New York Times. I suspect, you know, it's not a lot of people, you know. Uh, you know, the difference is, of course, uh, here we can if we want to, and there you can't because it's in theory blocked, although a lot of people I know find ways around it. But I also think... Um, you know, a lot of particularly the upwardly mobile people and middle class people probably are pretty satisfied with their lives in China. And I think they see it more as an irritation than anything else. And I don't think it's something that uh, would necessarily cause them to uh, uh, want to overthrow the system. You know, there's a colleague of mine in the Ash Center who works uh, on the Middle East. And his brother was living in uh, Cairo during the demonstrations that came in Cairo. And he said, my brother is completely apolitical. No interest whatever in politics. Couldn't understand why these people were out on the streets, what they were demonstrating about. And then one day they shut off his internet. The next day he was out on the streets demonstrating with them. So, you know, people do get frustrated. People do want that kind of access. People do... Uh, want to be able to surf and find information. You know, I don't think there's a clear answer to your question, but I do think over time it is a kind of wave that's difficult to hold back. I mean, we've seen your know, waves of new technologies, and as a response, we get these kind of dystopian uh, novels, uh, books which are written, but somehow, you know, societies find a way to live with the new technologies, to live with whatever government is trying to do to control and on the whole expand their freedoms. I suspect over time this might also be a similar result. I think we have time for one more if anybody has one. Oh, right here. So we've seen the stories like 1984 so many in time, so many times over and over again in other forms of media where you know, that feeling comes through where it's, you know, Star Trek or, you know, just all these derivative things. Have there been any other works of literature or film or art or anything that have improved anthropologically on what Orwell originally laid down with this story? That's a good question. And my personal answer would be no, it's hard to think of anything. I mean, 
this was such, you know, following, you know, his other things uh, with Animal Farm and then coming into 1984, uh, you know, technologies can change, you can change, you can shift the timing, you can shift the technologies, but I think uh, the crucial juxtaposition of uh, intrusion of government into people's lives and the attempts to control set against can you keep an inner faith and an inner belief to resist that. I, maybe other people know, but I can't think of anything which has really expressed that better since 1984. But you know, maybe other people here can suggest examples that, that would uh, be better. Well, if not, maybe that's a good note to end on. Um, but thank you all so much for coming out tonight, and Dr. Sage, thank yeah, you so thank much. Thank you very much for staying uh, behind. Thank you. Thank you.